our series on personal evangelism, uh, this morning's lesson will concern knowing your audience or knowing who it is to whom you are witnessing. Um, the question that I have here at the, be- at the beginning of the handout is, does it matter how the gospel is presented based on who is listening? If the truth, should, if the truth is the truth, should we concern ourselves with the background, culture, or religion of the listener? Does presentation even matter? Now, you might be thinking instantly, well, Paul does say that um, we are not to use, uh, it's not the wisdom of our own words, um, but it's through the preaching of the gospel, it's the preaching of Christ that sinners are saved. And so, if if our own wisdom, if it's the wisdom of words that's not important, then perhaps it doesn't matter what the background of someone is. Um, So, uh, I want to consider that a little bit uh, this morning. Um, first, I want to get into what I believe the wisdom, our own words, speaking with our own wisdom concerning the gospel, what that entails. Some of us are familiar with uh, some of this. What I believe it has to do with is almost conning people or co- presenting the gospel in a way in which it will be acceptable to the listener. Um, There's, in fact, most of Christianity is doing that today. They present the gospel in a way in which it is appealing. Um, You have the Joel Olsteins of the world. You have the megachurches. They talk about Christ. They talk about coming to Christ. They talk about um, Christ in a way that doesn't, um, they don't want to call people sinners. They call sin mistakes, right? And they change the real, what, what is really at the core of the gospel in that man is lost, dead in his trespasses and sins, and he's already in a condemned state. And um, he's not condemned because he hears the gospel and refuses. He's already condemned, right? Man is born lost and dead in trespasses yeah. and sins. But man, as we know, has twisted and changed and tried to make the gospel more appealing so that people aren't offended when they come to church and they hear the preaching they just aren't offended and that's what speaking with our own wisdom has to do with oh tailoring it in any way that is contrary or contradictory to what the word of god actually has to say to make it appealing to lost sinners oh Before we go any further, consider your background before you were born again. We're considering, does the background of the listener matter when you are presenting the gospel to somebody? Well, consider yourself. What was your background before you were saved? Um, So uh, in this audience here today, we have people with a mixed background. Um, There are some who never grew up in church. Um, There are some who grew up in certain forms of Christianity, uh, Protestantism. Um, And there are some who, I know uh, Sister Kilgard grew up in Catholic, Roman Catholicism. Um, Darren grew up in the Mormon church. Um, There are people here who come from different backgrounds. And if you think of your own background and what your ideas were of heaven and hell or purgatory or what you were told or taught about who Jesus Christ even was, um, and perhaps you had never even heard of Jesus Christ, the, if you think about 
yourself, and then you think about how it was that you heard the gospel, how it was that you came to understand the truth of the word of God. Um, Now think about when you might be talking to someone else who comes from a different background. Um, Consider, before we get into all the different backgrounds of people in our country today, consider those whom you have had the opportunity to lead to the Lord. If you have never led anyone to the Lord, perhaps because you're a new convert, at least consider the people to whom you have shared your testimony or your gospel message. What kind of background have you, or the peop, do the people come from that you've dealt with? Um, I can say that for me, I've talked to people about the Lord who were atheists. Um, some of you know uh, um, Taylor Smizer. He's been born again. Um, I talked to him some, but Cameron mostly witnessed to him. He was actually saved having never even really learned who Moses was. These are things that he learned after the fact. He did not grow up in church. He knew nothing about God, and yet he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I have a witness to people who were uh, Muslim. We've had in-depth conversations. In fact, before I was saved, I had debates and discussions with the Muslim, Jehovah's Witness, etc. But then after I was saved, um, it was amazing how much different it was in being able to witness to that person and the confidence that I had once I was actually saved. Um, but I've uh, spent much time talking to uh, people who believe in Islam. Um, really a varied, varied background. I think about some of my employees and people that I've, I've witnessed to. I remember one day... There's this girl who was working with me, and she's just completely comes from a godless background. Um, her parents in and out of jail. She had problems with uh, uh, drug abuse and things like that. And and I witnessed to her one time. We just started off in a conversation. It, it just kind of went in a certain direction. Next thing you knew, I basically had been preaching to her for 45 minutes because we were stuck in a truck together driving down to Denver. And just before we showed up to the house, she said, Man, she said, I had no idea when I woke up this morning that I would be hearing so much about God today. And we had a great conversation. She wasn't saved. Maybe the Lord will deal with her later. But isn't it interesting, all the different people from different backgrounds that we come into contact with? And I want you to reflect on who you've actually witnessed to. How did that go? How did those conversations go? Next, consider who you may come into contact with in your community. And I, will, I think it would be good if you haven't already filled these out. I handed this out last week. But if you haven't already filled it out, actually take the time and go through and think about who you've witnessed to. Fill these out. And then fill out this next section. Um, consider who you may come into contact with in your community. In Post Falls, Spokane area, Deer Park, and so forth. What variety of culture and religious background they may have. Uh, Just before the service started, Darren was talking about um, he knows some Mennonites up in Deer Park. You know, there's, we have a lot of, we actually have a lot of varied backgrounds in our our areas. Uh, Maybe in some parts of the country it will be different than in others. I know if you're down in Boulder, down in Colorado, they actually have a Buddhist university in that town. And there's quite a few students that go there. 
And uh, people are coming, just like any university, people are coming from all over the place and coming and living there for four years. And sometimes, it seems like most of them are settling there. The way you go around town, I've done a lot of work there and up in the mountains around Boulder, and there's those prayer flags hanging from people's yards and on their porches, just like you're in Nepal. Um, uh, Buddhist statues everywhere down in Colorado. And um, then you're getting more and more in that region, uh, people coming and working. These are highly educated people coming from India and different places um, and coming to work in uh, um, tech businesses down there in Colorado. And uh, in fact, I was talking to your neighbor who moved here from Seattle, and he was talking about how many Asians and people from uh, Pakistan and India and so forth are moving to the Seattle area. With them is coming paganism. And I've been in homes where I, I was doing a, in Longmont, Colorado, I was uh, cleaning uh, windows on a house and I went into one of the rooms upstairs. The entire room is a shrine. It's got the, the idols and the, and the pictures on the wall and all the candles laid out and, and everything. And um, we're talking about our country, America, has been referred to as the great melting pot of the world. It's becoming more and more of a melting pot of the world. And now our borders are open. And so, not to get political, but it's just people are pouring in from everywhere. And more and more, we are going to come into contact with people who really have the same kind of pagan background that they did in the times of the early church when the, when the apostles went into uh, the, time, the nations of uh, the Gentiles. Um, so uh, as we consider who we might come into contact with and who we might encounter, do you think it would be beneficial for you to know anything about these belief systems? I did not say, do you think it's necessary if you're witnessing to a Mormon, is it necessary for you to have read the entirety of the big, I can't remember what it's called, but I have a copy of it, the huge big blue book on all the details of how it started and what they really believe in everything. No, it's not necessary. But is it helpful to understand where people are coming from? Absolutely it's helpful to understand where they're coming from. Is that using our wisdom and, and relying on our uh, our ability to present the gospel? No, not at all. Um, it's important to know where people are coming through, coming from. Um, one of the most fascinating things I discovered as I studied various religions is that they are indeed similar in the following areas. People will say, and more and more you'll hear people say, um, I believe that Oprah Winfrey has, holds to this philosophy. Um, I've watched the recording of it where she says that there are many ways to God and all religion is basically the same. Um, and so it's just whatever works for you, you know, it's important to believe in God, but in, at the, at the end of the day, everybody's going to God if they follow these systems and it's just whatever works for you. The reality is that if someone tells you, if you know anything about religions of the world, and someone says, well, basically all religion is the same anyway. You can actually agree with them. Because all religion, yes. all religion, except for true Christianity, is the same yeah. in the following area. They're all works-based. Every single religion has a works-based belief system. 
They all believe in pleasing their gods. Hindus, I mean, they, hundreds and hundreds of gods. They can't keep track of them all. They just, it's amazing how many gods they have. But they still believe that they should please the gods. There's a reason that pagans offer sacrifice. They're trying to please their god. And so, <clears throat> um, or they believe in a system like Buddhism, a system of good behavior that will benefit a person in the afterlife. All religions are similar in this, except for a few forms of so-called Christianity. It's amazing. All false religions believe in an afterlife. It's only some ignorant, my understanding is, it's only some ignorant forms of Christianity that believe in just annihilation. Right, like Jehovah's Witnesses, unless you're one of the 144,000, it's just annihilation. Um, Seventh-day Adventists don't believe in hell. They don't believe in purgatory. Um, but all religions uh, believe in an afterlife. While they teach consequences for negative or bad behavior, no religion except true Christianity believes in an absolute destination of either heaven or hell. All religions believe in some form of purgatory. It's not just Roman Catholicism. Islam believes in a purgatory that's very similar to Islam. But Buddhists believe. You've heard the term nirvana. It's reaching that final place, or that final resting place, final state of perfect peace. But in between, there's, there's reincarnations. There's going to a place, and, and uh, you're constantly working things out. And so... Um, Hindu, uh, they believe in purgatory. Some forms of Hindu believe, they say that um, the worst of the worst, the absolute worst people in history, they still have a chance, they still will get out of purgatory. But it could take up to trillions of years. And they have some special name for what multiple trillions is. So at the end of the day, it's basically eternity, but there's still hope for here's the dangerous thing about false religion is there's still hope. It might be absolutely horrible. Like I said last week, my Muslim friend who told me he cannot just assume that Allah is going to let him into heaven. He doesn't know whether he's done enough good to make up for all the bad and so forth. And they believe in a fiery place where all the bad works are burned off and there's suffering and pain. But eventually the worst Muslim is still going to make it. Once he's paid for all of his sins. And so they indeed are all the same. Most religions believe in creation. They don't believe in the same creation account that we believe in, but they believe in creation. Um, and uh, most idolatrous religions worship the creature more than the creator, but they still believe in a creator. Remember Paul said in, in, uh, in Romans 1, that man, when he, when he began to fall and he began to err so wickedly in his religion, it says, and he began to worship the creature more than the creator. But man, in worshiping the creature, what does that mean? It means he makes an idol out of a serpent, or he makes an idol out of some animal, or he makes an idol with you know, the things of creation and so forth in ways of trying to please his God, his creator, and so forth. And so, um, 
Many pagan religions, such as North American native religions, they even believe in a great, and there's an account of some kind of flood, some kind of great flood and so forth. And so all religions are the same in such way. Understanding some of these things helps us greatly when statements are made, such as, well, all religion is basically the same. I respond, I have responded in, in this way. All religion is alike at its core, except for biblical Christianity, because they are all works-based. But what sets Christianity apart, well, some of you give me some feedback. What sets Christianity apart? I've already said that all false religions are works-based. What sets true Christianity, not false forms of Christianity, that are also works-based, right. right? But true Christianity, what, what sets us apart? In what form, though? Uh, That uh, God does redeem us as we are uh, with uh, knowing the inability we have to achieve goodness. uh, You know, going to church, being baptized, uh, being a member of the church, uh, you know, tithing, none of that means nothing. it's uh, just God's mercy and grace that saves us. Mm-hmm. And there's a way in which, how did God save us? California. One-time blood sacrifice. There you go. And that one-time blood sacrifice was what? A substitute. Yes. Right? The substitutionary atonement. The, no other religion has a substitute who paid the penalty for our sin, so we don't have to do enough good works to earn heaven, or we don't have to go to some purgatory where all of our sins will be burned off until we finally can be presentable, presented to God. But it, because of grace, because of God's mercy, because God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe upon Him should not perish but have eternal life, that is what separates us, Christianity, from all the rest of the world. We believe that God sent His Son into the world to die for sinners, and that He died for our sins. He was buried according to the Scriptures, and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. No other religion has that. And that substitute who died for us also said, I am the way the truth and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Ofer Winfrey completely has missed the mark when she says, well, they all basically come to the same place. No, Jesus Christ, our substitute, said, I'm the only way. And so, while we can agree with people and say that, uh, oh, uh, yeah, all religion is basically the same. We can then disagree and tell them there's one exception. Not to chase a rabbit, but yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, don't the Muslims believe that, I mean, Muhammad is dead and buried in a grave at Mecca, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, their vicariate didn't go, didn't go to heaven, right? Well, no, he, well, that? well um, yeah, he went to heaven, but he, um, he's not their substitute. He didn't die for their sin. But he didn't he, go bodily to heaven, Oh yes, yes, absolutely. He hasn't been raised. Yes, and so that's see the resurrection, our substitute, our savior is a living savior, right? He's not some prophet. He's not sees Buddha's dead. 
all these other inventors of religion are dead and in the ground and uh, um, and so forth. And so our religion is indeed different. What we can do then is point out, there's no sense in debating with people the difference between Catholicism and Islam and Jehovah's Witnesses and Hindus and Buddhists and all that. And, and Listen, it's all false religion. It doesn't matter whether it has Jesus and they, they have... They believe in Jesus and Mary and all this. Or they believe in Buddha. Listen, false religion is false religion. But what's different about us is our Savior. And so, um, did it matter to Jesus Christ or the apostles what background people had? Think about the messages that we have by the apostles or Jesus Christ himself. And we're going to look at some of this, but did it matter? I, I don't want to chase a rabbit again. I'm, I'm really good at it, though. Yeah. But I think what's important, though, when we testify of God's grace, is to couple. Yes, we have a living Savior vicariate. But like Brother Kilgard said, it, there, that's not coupled with anything. Not coupled with no. what's on top of it. Yeah, exactly. And that, there's a lot of people who get confused about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they believe that Jesus died. I mentioned a couple weeks ago. All form, every form of Christianity believes that Jesus died and was buried and rose again. I mean, they're big into celebrating Christmas and Easter and actually going almost too far into that. Um, but they're also plus plus, right? They're, but you still have to, you know, confess your sins to a priest. Yeah. You still got to do these Hail Mary, or these <laughs> rose, pray the rosary, and you still got to this, and you still got to this, and you still got to this. And even then, you're probably still going to go to purgatory. There's no hope in that. Um, and so, or they add baptism to it, right? Uh, Church of Christ, they'll, they'll say, oh, we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, they come so close, but you're not actually saved unless you've been baptized. And so it's always plus plus, and it's really important to know uh, where, where people are coming from. As we consider, did it matter to Jesus or the apostles what background people had, and did they try to present the gospel in a way that was understandable to those people without compromising the truth, without just using the wisdom of, of man's words and stuff, etc. And yes, the answer is yes. Did Let me ask it this way. Did they present the gospel exactly the same way every single time to every lost sinner? No. Jesus, I don't... You can look at how Jesus dealt with people, and he didn't present it the same way. He did not... Talk to them the same. It, it was always dealing with them and their need. And so, um, is it possible to preach the good news and make it relatable and understandable without relying on the wisdom of men and devising formulas and sales pitches and methods of closing the deal and getting professions? The obvious answer is yes. Let us consider briefly how the message can be tailor-fit with the direction of the Holy Spirit to aid us. And this is, that's a really important phrase that I put in there intentionally with the direction of the Holy Spirit to lead us. Let's consider Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Who was Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee and religious leader of Israel. Nicodemus approached Jesus. You can look at the at your notes here. I've, I've summarized a few things. Um, Nicodemus approached Jesus with words of flattery. That's how he approached Jesus. Remember, he's a Pharisee. He was lost at this time. He did, he, he ended up being saved. There's evidence of that later. 
But Nicodemus approached Jesus with words of flattery. This is what he said. Rabbi, think about it, he's a Pharisee. He says, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. When Nicodemus said, he didn't come to Jesus and say, I know that thou art uh, um, a teacher come from God. Nicodemus didn't say, I know that thou art a teacher. He said, we know. He's a, who's the we in there? The Pharisees, the religious leaders. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. He was speaking for the Pharisees. Did they believe that the miracles done by Jesus were of God? He says, and we know that because you do these miracles that God's with you. The Pharisees did not believe that. In fact, we know that when Jesus cast out demons, they accused him of casting out devils in the name of Beelzebub, in the name of the devil. They did not believe. The Pharisees rejected Christ. And all those things that he did, they, they rejected him for who he was in spite of what he was doing. But Nicodemus comes saying, we know that thou art a man come from God, a teacher come from God. Jesus cut right to this individual's spiritual condition and need for both himself and his Pharisees, Pharisee friends, to be born again, and to see, to, in order to see and enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be after Jesus told him about the, the new birth and the need to be born again? And Nicodemus is... This wise man, he says, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? We see here Jesus dealt with him according to who he was. That's all we could go on and on, but I just want to point out Jesus dealt with Nicodemus according to who he was. A self righteous Pharisee who thought that he was good enough, and what Jesus did is he just got right to the heart of the matter and says, Listen, it doesn't matter who you are, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It got Nicodemus's attention. Then they had a discussion, right. and Nicodemus ended up right. being saved. Most of his Pharisee buddies didn't get saved, but he did. And so Jesus dealt with him where he was coming from. It's not always comfortable for the listener when... A person is preaching. Now, a lot of times it's interesting. A lot of times a preacher can be preaching to a crowd and someone will be listening and actually sometimes gets offended because the preacher was picking on him. <laughs> and the preacher had no idea. That's what the direction of the Holy Spirit can do. But the, the same goes, though, when you're dealing with someone and you know where they're coming from and they keep trying to go here and they keep trying to go there, but you know what they believe. You know where they come from. And you just keep dealing with what's important. That's what Jesus did. He just, let's just, we're just going to keep dealing with, with this. And oh, it can be uncomfortable for that person, but it's what they need to hear. And of course, we don't do it to be mean, but we do it out of love because they need to hear it. And we need to do it with a, with a right spirit. And then next, let's consider the woman of Samaria. This is quite a different presentation of uh, salvation and what it is. And the woman of Samaria was quite a different person. She was an immoral sinner whose culture embraced false worship. Um, John 4, 6 says, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. 
There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which is a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it was that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Now this is a lengthy passage, and we can't get into every aspect about how he dealt with her. But Jesus begins dealing with this lost woman with an object lesson. And it wasn't an accident that he happened to go and sit down on Jacob's well. <laughs> okay. And, oh, and then this woman approaches him at the well, and then he can tell her about living water. But he began by using the well as in the water, and the reason that they were there as an object lesson to speak of her, of her need of living water, just as he told John about his need to be born again. John 4, 9, uh, going or that's not correct. Well, it says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And then going down to verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. And then notice this statement. Remember when I was saying sometimes you can be direct? Just deal with what they need. What does he say there? He says, You worship, you know not what. That's a... That's a statement that is relevant for us when we're talking to people in our society. Um, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when tr- true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto Him, I know that the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Jesus pointed out her spiritual ignorance, but he didn't leave her in that state. He points out her spiritual ignorance and then concludes by revealing himself as the Messiah. And we know the rest of the story, how it is that she believed that message. And she went into town and began to point men to Christ. And she said, come see a man who told me all things ever I did. And and it went from there. But we see that the way Jesus dealt with her was much different than how he dealt with Nicodemus. And then the last person I want to consider is the rich young man. This man was a self-righteous, he was a young man, self-righteous man seeking to inherit eternal life by means of good works. He was already religious. He would be like those people that we have in our society today who, and I guess what we could have done is looked at these people that Jesus is dealing with and then go and try to say, now who in our society would be like these people? But with this rich young man, he would be like, of so many people that are filling up churches today, he believed in God. He followed the law. 
He was a good person. He was like Paul was. You know, he was a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And so this, this rich young man, self-righteous man seeking to inherit eternal life, but it was by means of good works. <clears throat> Matthew nineteen sixteen says, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have, have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest me good, thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into the life, keep the commandments. I want to just pause there. Jesus begins speaking with him similar to how he spoke with Nicodemus. As far as Nicodemus tried to butter him up. You know, we, are, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. And Jesus just dealt with the man's need. Here this man comes to him and says, good master. And Jesus just said, there's none good but God. Now, was, um, was Jesus good? Was, he said, good master. Jesus was good. There was no sin found in him. He was good. Um, was Jesus God? Absolutely. Jesus is the son of God. He's God. Um, this man, though, did not truly believe that Jesus was the son of God. Jesus never corrected anyone who genuinely praised or even fell down and worshipped him. So think about this. He came and said, uh, good master. If he would have been genuine, Jesus would not have corrected him. Think about the people who literally fell down and worshipped him. Jesus never told anybody, get up. I'm just a man. Get up. I'm not good. Get up, there's none good but God, right? Uh, no, Jesus was worthy of worship. Jesus was good. But this man did not really believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And he did not know who he really was. And so, um, moving on in verse 18, he saith unto him, uh, which, because Jesus had said, uh, if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And Jesus is going to show him his inability. He saith unto him, which, Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things I have kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and basically love thy neighbor, and uh, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And then notice this part, though. And come follow me. Be my disciple. He, he wanted to know what good thing he could do to have eternal life, just like a lot of people in this world. But to actually believe in Jesus of the Bible, to actually follow Jesus and repent of their sins and trust wholly in him, so many professing Christians aren't willing to do that. And what this man really choked on was um, to sell all that he had and sell out completely and come follow me. I wonder what would have happened if Jesus would have just said, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then start over. But he said, and come follow me. Mm. Not so interested in that. And so, um, anyway, Jesus dealt with him in a way that, of course, he knew his heart. Um, and... Uh, it says, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The key thing to understand in this passage is that the man did not ask the same questions as the jailer did of Paul and Silas. Remember what, 
what did, remember the jailer came out and fell down trembling? And now you're waking up. Oh, I should do that more often, actually. Because <laughs> I see some real, oh, uh, but I forgot what I was going to ask. Oh. Um, didn't ask the same question. Yeah, he didn't. Oh, of uh, Paul and Silas. When the jailer came out, what question did he ask? It says when he fell down trembling, and the jailer said, What must I do to be saved? So there's no preconceived idea. There's no, um, it's, it, it was just a, a honest question. No strings attached. This rich young man, he said, What good thing must I do to have eternal life? There's a big difference. And that's where listening is important. When people are talking to you about, oh, I want to be a member of the church. Oh, I want to be baptized. I want to be a Christian. But then you really understand, what do you, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. What, you know, um, and what do you believe about your sin? What do you believe about your standing before God? Uh, have you been forgiven of your sins? Have you placed all your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And so forth. And, and if they have any things, well, I've always been a good person, you know, and I just want to keep doing right. Oh, no, that's, that's, not, that's not right, you know. Well, I've always believed in God and stuff like that. So what is the preaching of the gospel? It can be simply summed up in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you have also received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. It's not just that He died. It's that He died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried. And that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. I want to just compare two messages here quickly. Um, we looked at Jesus dealing with three people, and then I just want to compare two messages. Peter on the day of Pentecost was preaching to the Jews. And in Acts 2.22, he says, Men of Israel, so think about who his audience is. Men of Israel, that's his audience. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you, were, you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken him by wicked hands. Notice here, what did we just say about the, about the gospel? What is in key ingredients? And you have taken by wicked hands, have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up. You have the resurrection. Having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. <laughs> Down to verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. They knew who David was. Um, They knew who Moses was. They knew who Abraham was. Um, And so, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but saith himself, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. And then once again, notice, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now I quickly want to go over to Paul in Athens. And he says, or he didn't say this, but Paul in Athens, he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Acts 17 and verse 16. Now, consider who the audience is here, but consider how different the message is. But yet it's the same message. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the whole city given to idolatry. So it's a bunch of pagan idolaters in verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him and said, some said, what will this babbler say? Others, some, he seems to be forth a setter, a setter forth of strange gods. But why? It says, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And so, then going down to, so he's in Athens preaching the gospel already. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. He's sharing his observation about their religion. We're talking about making the message relatable to the listener without compromising what the gospel truly is. And that's what we're talking about today. And so he says, he makes an observation. You're too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship. That reminds me of Jesus talking to the woman of Samaria. He said, you don't know what you worship. We know what we worship. He says the same, Paul says the same kind of thing here. You ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you, that God made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. He dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Oh, this actually, you could go back and see that statement paralleled with Stephen's statement. Stephen, when he was preaching, he brought out that God does, when he was talking about Solomon building the temple and so forth, and God does not dwell in a temple made with hands and so forth. Um, And so, uh, neither is worshipped with men's hands, though he need anything, seeing he giveth life to all, breath and life and all things. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So he's preaching to a bunch of poly, uh, uh, not polygamous, uh, polytheists. polytheists. And um, they, they have all these gods, but he's preaching about a sovereign God. Yeah. He's saying, this God hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of your, hab- of your habitation. This is a sovereign God over all his creation, which includes men. In verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. We are indeed made in the image of God. And so he's, this is what he's talking about. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like a gold, silver, stone graven with, by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. 
Because he is appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man. Who's that? Jesus. He's going to judge the world by Jesus Christ, whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that what? He has raised him from the dead. He's preaching the gospel here. That man whom he ordained, I have this in parentheses, is the same Jesus the previous verse stated when he preached unto them about Jesus and the resurrection. This account of him in Athens begins with he was preaching unto them Jesus and the resurrection, and his message concludes with Jesus and the resurrection. God indeed is going to judge the world by Jesus Christ who will judge at the great white throne. And when they heard this, look at this, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain clave unto him, and believed, among whom was Dionysius the Arapagite, and a woman named Demarius, or Damaris, and with others with them. The difference between this message and Peter's message was simply the men to whom they were speaking. The gospel was preached in both messages, and men believed the gospel message in both messages. Uh, Stephen was stoned, and his message was rejected. And in fact, there is not a record of anyone believing that day. Think about it. Stephen preached the message, and it begins by seeing, in Stephen being full of the Holy Ghost, spoke. It doesn't say anybody was saved that day. Does it mean that it was a bad message? No. Who was there that day? We know the Apostle Paul. They laid their coat at one named the Apostle Paul, or at Saul's feet. Here's an interesting thing. Paul on Mars Hill, when he got done, it says who was saved here. And I did a little research on this. Dionysius the Arapagite is a judge. He was was a judge in the high court of Greece. Uh, Being an Arapagite means he was a judge, and in Athens they had is basically like our Supreme Court. And he was one of the judges that basically sat on the Supreme Court of Greece. When major cases were tried in Greece and they couldn't make decisions, they went to Athens. And this man was one of those. Well, then what's interesting is according to history, in the 2nd century AD, the Bishop of Corinth wrote of this Dionysius the Arapagite and says that he became the first bishop of the Athenians, the church in Athens. He was the first pastor or bishop of the Athenians. We know, I'll just close with this this thought. We know that the scripture says, we're talking about the background of people. The scripture says that not many noble and not many wise are called. But it doesn't say not any wise and not any noble. And this man, just like Paul, being a leader of the Pharisees, God saved him. Jesus had said it's harder for a rich man to enter into, go through the eye of a needle, or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the heaven, right? But he didn't say that rich man can't enter into heaven. He said with God all things are possible. And while the rich man refused to sell his goods, we know that Zacchaeus was saved. We know that other people that were filthy rich were saved in the New Testament. And so the reality is this is a wonderful thing is that God saves everybody. Whether rich, wise, noble, poor, pagan, former, grew up in a Baptist church. 
and rejected the gospel message till they were 50, 60, 70 years old. It doesn't matter. God can save anybody. And I believe it's really important to understand where people are coming from and present the gospel accordingly. Amen.